My name is Nicole Pitches and you are listening to the Reasonable Woman podcast, a legal podcast for all you law enthusiasts out there. So before we begin, I've got a bit of a confession to make. Uh, This is the second time I've actually uploaded this episode on the Maastricht Treaty. Having listened to the original one, I just wasn't satisfied with it and almost immediately after having uploaded it, I thought I could do better. So here's version two. I'm going to make this one a lot easier to follow and understand. So all those who heard the original one, I'm so sorry, this one is going to be much better, I promise. The sources for today include the treaties themselves, of course, and the websites from the European Parliament. You can find all the sources in the description box. And I'd just like to remind everyone that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature and is provided for solely educational purposes. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. So, as mentioned, today we are going to be talking about the Maastricht Treaty. It's probably one of the most important treaties ever, and yes, I realise I say that a lot. And as always, I will do my utmost to keep it as condensed as possible. So let's get cracking. The Maastricht Treaty was signed by each of the 12 member states of the European Coal and Steel Community. In every state, parliaments ratified the treaty, sometimes holding a referendum. The treaty is most known for its creation of the three pillars of the EU, but we're going to go ahead and start with the common provisions in Title I. Article A. The parties to the treaty have officially established themselves as the European Union, making a new stage in the process of creating an ever closer union among the people of Europe. Here, the treaty specifically states that the EU is founded on the European communities, supplemented by the various policies and other forms of cooperation within the Maastricht Treaty. It is in Article G of the second title that states the treaty establishing the European Economic Community, the one that we looked at before, will be amended to create a European community. Article G1, replacing the term European Economic Community with European Community. The difference between the European Community and the European Union is that when the EU was created in the Maastricht Treaty, the former EEC became the EC. In a future episode, we'll come to learn that it is with the Lisbon Treaty that this dual system of the EU and EC comes to an end. So, the task of the Union in the Maastricht Treaty is to organise in a manner demonstrating consistency and solidarity relations between the Member States and between their peoples. Article B. This sets out the objectives of the EU. The first objective is the promoting the economic and social progress, which is balanced and sustainable, in particular through the creation of an area without internal frontiers, through the strengthening of economic and social cohesion, and through the establishment of the economic and monetary union, ultimately including a single currency. Number two to assert its identity on the international scene through the implementation of a common foreign and security policy, including the eventual framing of a common defence policy. This is going to be the second pillar. Number three, to strengthen the protection of the rights and interests of the nationals of its member states through the introduction of a citizenship of the union. Objective four, to develop close cooperation on justice and home affairs. This is the third pillar. And lastly, objective five, to maintain in full the, please forgive my pronunciation, acquis communautaire, um, and build on it with a view to considering, through the procedure referred to in Article 2, to what extent the policies and forms of cooperation introduced by this treaty may need to be revised with the aim of ensuring the effectiveness of the mechanisms and the institutions of the community. The acquis communautaire is a principle that I will talk in further detail about in the next episode when I address the Amsterdam Treaty. Article B further stresses that the objectives will be achieved in accordance with the conditions set within the treaty itself, while respecting the principle of subsidiarity, as defined in Article 3B of the treaty establishing the European Community. I'll talk about this principle in just a moment. 
Article C mentions the principle of acquis communautaire and states how the union will be served by a single institutional framework in order to ensure consistency and continuity of its activities. The Council and the Commission are the institutions responsible for ensuring such consistency. The European Community's institutional structure will consist of the Council, European Parliament, European Commission and the Court of Justice as stated by Article E. Article F addresses how the Union will respect the national identities of its member states, whose systems of government are founded upon the principles of democracy. The Union shall respect fundamental rights, as guaranteed by the European Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and the Fundamental Freedoms, and as they result from the constitutional traditions common to the member states, as general principles of community law. Article F further stipulates how the Union shall provide itself with the means necessary to attain its objectives and carry through its policies. Moving on to the three pillars. Those studying EU law at the moment will hear this over and over again. The treaty created the union with certain powers, which has come to be known as the three pillars. Number one, the European communities. Number two, the common foreign and security policy. And number three, cooperation in the field of justice and home affairs. These pillars are no longer in place since the Lisbon Treaty, but unfortunately for those law students, you'll still have to know about it. Okay, pillar one, the European community. Replacing the European economic community with simply European community means that the European community has now an expanded competence beyond just economic means. The first pillar was far more supranational in nature, with the other two pillars, the common foreign security policy and justice and home affairs, less so, as both covered intergovernmental cooperation via the common institutions, with only certain supernatural characteristics, for example, getting the Commission involved and consulting with the European Parliament. The first pillar grouped the activities, working and decision-making procedures of the three original EU organisations together. If you'll remember, this, these are the EEC, the ECSC and Euratom. This pillar created a framework which enabled the community's institutions to exercise sovereignty transferred by member states in areas governed by the treaty. Its objective was to make sure the single market worked and to promote a harmonious, balanced and sustainable development of economic activities, a high level of employment and social protection and equality between men and women. In order to achieve these objectives, the communities established a common market and other related measures and initiated the economic and single monetary policy. Every one of the community's activities had to respect the principle of proportionality and the principle of subsidiarity for all those areas that fell outside of its exclusive competence, as stated in Article 5 of the EC Treaty. Those two principles will without a doubt turn up multiple times in your legal studies um, and I'll probably do another episode on them, but I'll quickly define them here. The proportionality principle is laid down in Article 5 of the Maastricht Treaty and regulates the EU's exercise of powers, setting the actions of EU institutions within specified bounds. Thus, EU actions must be limited to what is strictly necessary in order to achieve treaty objectives. The content and the form of action must be kept in mind when pursuing any particular aim. The subsidiarity principle is also defined in Article 5 and ensures decisions are taken as closely as possible to the citizen and that constant checks are made to verify that action at EU level is justified in light of available national, regional or local level possibilities. Essentially, the EU should not take action unless it's been given full, exclusive competence to do so and unless it is more effective than the actions that would be taken at national, regional or local level. So you can see why the two principles often work hand in hand. The Treaty of Lisbon has two key protocols related to the two principles. Protocol 1, 
which covers the roles of national parliaments, encourages these parliaments to get involved in EU activities and requires EU documentation and proposals to be sent to them as quickly as possible, so that they can examine them before the Council decides to make any decisions. Protocol 2 requires the Commission to take into account regional and local points of views of all draft legislative acts and to make a statement on how they are respecting the principles of subsidiarity. It allows national parliaments to object proposals if it breaches the principle of subsidiarity, which then forces the proposal to be reviewed. It can then either be maintained, amended or withdrawn by the Commission, or even blocked by the Council or the Parliament if deemed necessary. If the principle of subsidiarity is indeed breached, the Committee of Regions or EU member states themselves may refer the Act directly to the Court of Justice of the EU. Moving on to Pillar 2, the Common Foreign and Security Policy. The goal of this was to define and implement a common foreign and security policy using intergovernmental methods with active support from member states in the spirit of loyalty and mutual solidarity. The policy's objectives were to safeguard the common values of fundamental interests and independence of the Union, to strengthen the security of the Union and its member states in all ways, to preserve the peace and strengthen international security in accordance with the principles of the United Nations Charter as well as the principles of the Helsinki Final Act and the objectives of the Paris Charter, to promote international cooperation, and lastly, to develop and consolidate democracy and the rule of law and respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. In order to achieve these objectives, the Union would establish systematic cooperation between member states in the conduct of policy and would gradually implement joint action in the areas in which member states have important interests in common. Pillar 3. Cooperation in the fields of justice and home affairs. This was in order to provide EU citizens with high levels of safety within an area of freedom, security and justice. It covered a vast amount of areas. Number 1. Asylum policy. Number 2. Rules governing the crossing by persons of the external borders of the member states and the exercise of controls thereon. So, while there was freedom of movement within the member states, there would be controls like normal on the borders of member states and third countries. Number three, immigration policy and policy regarding nationals of third countries, specifically conditions of entry and movement by nationals of third countries on the territory of member states, conditions of residence, including family reunion and access to employment, and combating unauthorised immigration, residence and work. Number four, combating drug addiction. Number five, combating fraud on an international scale. Number six, judicial cooperation in civil matters. And then number seven, in criminal matters. Number eight, customs cooperation. And finally, number nine, police cooperation for the purposes of preventing and combating terrorism, unlawful drug trafficking, and other serious forms of international crime, including, if necessary, certain aspects of customs cooperation in connection with the organization of a union-wide system for exchanging information with the European Police Office, or Europol. Aside from the three pillars, the Maastricht Treaty provides further fundamental points. If you remember from the EU's objectives, an economic and monetary policy was mentioned. The Economic and Monetary Union, or EMU, is another step towards economic integration, which, according to the EU point of view, quote, brings the benefits of a greater size, international efficiency, and robustness to the EU economy as a whole and to the economies of the individual member states. The creation of the euro was a result of decades of economic cooperation debate. The European Central Bank, which was established by the Treaty of Amsterdam, has a primary goal to maintain the stability of the euro and to safeguard its value. It also acts as a central supervisor to financial institutions within the euro area. 
The euro was introduced in three stages. From 1990 to late 1993, there was the free movement of capital between member states. 1994 to 1998, there was further cooperation between national banks and the increased alliance of economic politics of member states. And then 1999 to now, the euro was introduced alongside a single monetary policy. In order to ensure that the euro is safeguarded when new countries are joining the union, the new countries must be stable in terms of their public debt levels, exchange and interest rates and inflation. As this is another quite meaty episode, let me quickly summarise what we have just been through. The Maastricht Treaty, or the Treaty of the European Union, established the foundations for the euro, the single currency, and increased cooperation between member states in multiple ways. European citizenship, allowing citizens to live and move freely between member states, a common foreign and security policy, and a closer cooperation between the judicial and police in criminal matters. The treaty based the EU on three pillars, the European communities, the common foreign security policy, and the justice and home affairs. Upon entry into force the treaty on EU, the EEC became the European community. And there you have it. I will be leaving you guys with this for today. I think I've certainly given you enough to mull over for now. In the next episode, we'll be going through the Amsterdam Treaty. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to shoot me an email should you have any particular topic you want to hear more about at thereasonablepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye.